Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. I'm here with Nick Gillespie, a journalist, public thinker, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, very thoughtful person, and also uh, a kind of outlier in the field of journalism. He has a PhD in English. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. You are uh, a libertarian who also identifies as postmodern. I'd love to hear the short pitch for why libertarians should embrace postmodernism and why postmodernists who don't identify as libertarian should see their philosophical or aesthetic position as leading to a sympathy towards libertarian ideals. Okay. I uh, studied literature uh, as a graduate student, first at Temple University in the late 80s, and then SUNY Buffalo. Uh, which is now, I think, going by University at Buffalo uh, in the early 90s. Um, and uh, it's, it's not a mistake uh, that Buffalo is the first place that Michel Foucault taught for an extended period in the U.S. Um, and it was, a, um, it was a school that was very interested in, kind of in, in all sorts of post-structural, or what was then called post-structural theory now is generally just lumped in as postmodern. Um, and, uh, you know, people like um, uh, Jacques Lacan was very popular there. Lacan, and I realize I'm getting ahead of myself, Lacan was the poster boy for a late 70s reason story about France's new anti-status philosophers. Um, and this is a, a way of getting towards that question of what postmodernism is and why I think it accords with libertarianism. Um, you know, the, the basic definition, the most you know, rudimentary one, is uh, Leotard's definition in the postmodern condition, written and published in the late 70s, where he said, uh, postmodernism is incredulity toward meta-narratives. Uh, and what I take that to mean is it is a thoroughgoing um, kind of epistemological skepticism towards grand theories that explain, you know, every burp, fart, and smell in the universe with absolute certitude. And it is very much a critique. It's, it's part of the Enlightenment, but it's a critique of the Enlightenment as it developed, uh, Enlightenment systems of knowledge developed in the 19th century uh, that were totalizing systems. Uh, and at least one of them is still with us in a big way. I mean, if you, if you look at the 19th century, as a uh, you know the three great theories that emanated from it you know it's marx it's darwin and it's freud marx and freud have taken a lot of hits although they still have some power uh darwin and a kind of you know and not him per se but you know the the people who speak in his name a kind of biological totalism is still around with us um in any case uh for me um looking at the limits of knowledge systems uh is to me is the quintessential libertarian move. I'm very, uh, in terms of kind of political philosophy, I'm a very um, indebted to Friedrich Hayek. And Hayek, who also uh, was you know, indebted to Karl Popper and whatnot, what I found 
you know, what, what Hayek stresses in his work is the limits of knowledge, not the extent of knowledge. And that, to me, seems to be the basic move in postmodernism. Uh, added to that is the idea that uh, postmodernism, like capitalism properly understood, I think foregrounds the construction of meaning, the construction of value, and it recognizes that it is always provisional, it's always ongoing, it's always being negotiated. Uh, and then to bring in a little bit of uh, Foucault here, I also find that libertarianism is very interested in questions about power. How does power circulate in a system? Who holds power? Who doesn't? How do you enfranchise more people with power? And then just to, you know, and I realize I'm just kind of uh, splurge, you know, just spewing a lot of stuff here. It's fascinating to me that Foucault, again, you know, who taught at SUNY Buffalo, my PhD alma mater, uh, was uh, towards the end of his life, um, became very interested in liberal theory as a way of restraining power from the state and you know what ended up being called biopolitics and things like that. He didn't go all the way there, but towards the end of his life, among his last lectures at the University of uh, uh, Paris, he told his students to read with special care the works of Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises. So for me, all of this stuff kind of makes sense. You know, what libertarianism is about is looking at the limits of power and the limits of knowledge, because, um, you know, if you, if you take totalizing systems of knowledge of power seriously, you start to treat individuals as mere integers in your grand equation of, what, of, of the perfect world or what is right and proper, what is true. And libertarianism, I think, pushes back against that. Uh, and I think postmodernism does, uh, you know, and I was probably gold into this all by um, reading Frederick Jameson's book in the late 80s, I guess, called, you know, uh, which was called Postmodernism or the Logic of Late Capitalism. Um, I think Jameson got it and I think he's totally wrong about it. I'll accept that both libertarian philosophy from Hayek and Popper and postmodernism have a skepticism about them, skepticism about power and centralized authority. Uh, but also, if I may, it, it, it absolutely, but it's also about epistemology, ultimately, which is that the best that we can know, um, you know, and we do know things, and we have to act as if our knowledge is pretty good and pretty certain, and we can predict certain things, or we can retrodictively explain why certain things happen or go wrong. But that our knowledge, epistemologically, ultimately, our understanding of the world is provisional, is partial, and is likely to you know, be upended tomorrow because we're going to figure something out or we'll start talking about things in a different way. Um, and to me, that leads to what Hayek and others called a kind of epistemological humility um, that you know, filters through every aspect of your life, but especially the exercise of power, whether it's market power, but especially whether it's state power. So I have two follow-up questions to that. Okay. One is just a sociological observation that not many people who read Lacan and Foucault identify as libertarian, and most libertarians that I know are allergic to continental thought. So while I think your, your synthesis is fascinating and worthy of contention, I, I love a, a reflection on sort of the sociological scene and why your narrative hasn't taken. And the, the second, which is maybe related to the first, is more substantial. And that is, um, I think the language of rights is pretty fundamental to classical liberalism. 
and postmodernism in certain views of it cast aspersion not just on grand narratives, but also on rights, because after all, rights are rooted in a metaphysical story about human nature, about society that also falls under suspicion. And so, you know, to be super cynical for a second, um, what do you say to the person who says, you know, you know who's postmodern? Viktor Orban and Vladimir P Putin, they're postmodern. Um, postmodernism is, is cynicism about universals and therefore using that cynicism to basically just um, support authoritarianism. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's a fantastic question uh, or, or rejoinder, because, you know, all of this is circling around, um, you know, a kind of, you know, on, on some basic level, when it comes to politics, there may only be will to power. Ultimately, you know, like the, you know, whoever wins, first they win and they subjugate people either, you know, mentally or physically. And then you come up with a story to explain why this is right and proper and just and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, this is where I depart, you know, probably from an extreme version of a kind of postmodern or post-structural, um, you know, mega kind of, uh, first off, an emphasis on, um, on disrupting metaphysics, but also that everything is language and everything is a game, et cetera. Um, because I think, and this is something that I pull out of my, you know, admittedly idiosyncratic reading of a lot of people, including Foucault, but there is something about the body and there is something about the individual that is ultimately irreducible. Uh, and when you look at, you know, the slave's body and the lashes on the back of the body, there is something that is beyond language. Uh, I think within human consciousness, you know, kind of vaguely but and broadly defined, we do, um, you know, we do experience the world as individuals. And when you start with that unit of analysis, and I'm happy to, you know, kind of complicate or problematize that as much as possible. But when you start with that, you know, then you start to think about, okay, what are ways in which individuals are able to get on in the world where uh, they're able to communicate with each other, where they're able to kind of um, uh, cooperate with each other. And this is also for me, you know, when I think about libertarianism and when I think about capitalism, you know, one critique of it, which has a lot of power and one definition of it by people who support it, it's all about individualism. It's all about, um, you know, kind of self-fulfillment. For me, it's really it's it's a superior way of kind of um, organizing and, and communicating and cooperating with people, which is something that is very, uh, very uh, big in Hayek's work, where he talks about emergent orders and that what both you know capitalism as an application of uh, kind of human activity it leads to an extended order. Um, where people can, you know, cooperate and communicate with people that they really don't know at all over vast periods of time and space and things like that. So um, I think it's right to always hold every, you know, every major concept, certainly individualism, certainly rights, um, they need to be treated with skepticism and whatnot. Um, but they are also pretty good functional categories, pragmatic categories categories that allow us to get on in the world. Um, and, you know, to me, that is something that's worth thinking about. Um, I don't, I don't, does that get to that question? Because then I want to go to the sociological question, which I think is also really. Okay, so, you know, sociologically, one thing, so, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I was born in 1963, I'm, I'm 58. So I caught the, you know, the tail end of the Cold War. 
you know, the beginning of the post-Soviet uh, era, which maybe we're going back into some refracted, you know, even shittier version of that because the future is never quite what we expect it to be uh, and things like that. And the culture wars, when I was in grad school in particular, so this was the late 80s and early 90s, this was the period when uh, what was being called political correctness was, you know, emerging. And um, that was, you know, and I, I think perhaps we can talk about this in a little bit, you know, the, the people that I trained with to be a professor are now, you know, associate professors or full professors. And we have wokeness, which is clearly related somehow to a kind of political correctness uh, that was being, was emerging in, I think in the late eighties and early nineties. Um, but to go to the sociological question, um, conservatives and oftentimes libertarians, sociologically after World War II, they were largely part of the right, um, you know, of, uh, of the broad fusionist coalition that came out of National Review that was kind of put together by Bill Buckley and people like Frank Meyer and other thinkers who were like, we need some counter to communism and to kind of, you know, big government growth and everything. And libertarians did not, for the most part, think very carefully about art and culture or also about kind of innovation and the creative destruction that, you know, according to people like Joseph Schumpeter, the economist who coined the term creative destruction, that is the characteristic of capitalism, of, you know, that, that people's demands are constantly changing and market orders and social orders and all sorts of things are constantly shifting and changing in order to fulfill people's demands. Uh, and maybe sometimes to create them, not in a cynical way, but to show them, oh, you, you, you know, you didn't want the iPhone, but here it is and isn't it kind of cool. But a capitalist society properly understood is a very disruptive one. And it's one where things are constantly changing. Uh, I love Schumpeter used the term mutations. Um, I take that seriously and the way that it affects art. And like, I like art that is experimental and innovative and that more than anything foregrounds the terms of its own construction. I like novels. I mean, I'm a, I, my background is in literary training. My interest is really in novels and fictions. And I like novels that foreground how poorly constructed the story they are telling is, where you know they're constantly inviting you to recognize that all narrators are suspect, all narrators are unreliable, because ultimately at the end we're human, and to be a human is to be an unreliable narrator. Not necessarily a bad faith unreliable narrator, but a limited one. That's the basis of my dissertation, which I hadn't thought about in years until this podcast, and I sent you an abstract about it, it's called Qualified Authority in American Fiction. And the whole idea of qualified authority stems from this idea that we both we're qualified to talk about things because we experience them and we witness them and we see them, and our authority is qualified because we are merely individuals who are fallible. Um, this is a long way getting to the question a lot of uh, libertarians, when I started at Reason, I wrote a lot about kind of literary wars and things like that. And I think a lot of libertarians at the time were not thoughtful about aesthetics. And because they were running with a right wing crew, which was saying things like, well, you know, Shakespeare is the best. Why are we revising the canon to bring in people other than Shakespeare? Uh, you know, do we really need to read, uh, you know, works by minor writers, especially women in the 19th, in 19th century America when we have Hawthorne uh, or things like that? And 
libertarians hadn't thought through the fact that they live, uh, you know, they were marginal people. They are marginal people. We are marginal people. And our whole worldview should always be looking at the margins for what is being repressed, uh, what is new, what is different, including going back in the past. And so I'm drawn to experimental art. I'm also drawn, uh, again, I'm drawn to postmodern works that foreground the, the way that they create meaning. And I think that's a very, very consistent with libertarianism. I don't, uh, my aesthetics, I, I kind of refuse to say that they should be shared by anyone else, but I like to present why I like the art that I like. Um, and for me, I think libertarians would do better to engage art more seriously and aesthetics more seriously. Um, and then the flip side of that, you know, I mentioned Jameson, uh, who talked about capitalism as, you know, the, the cultural logic of, of late capitalism, uh, you know, in, in the sense that he says, you know, his dictum was or is always historicized, which I totally agree with. And he's doing that from a Marxist perspective, because what he says, and there's some truth to this, that capitalism takes everything out of a historical context. It allows everybody to repurpose, remix everything in however they want. And you lose kind of the circumstances under something under which something was created. For me, that can be very liberating. Um, for a Marxist, that can be you know deadening because it, it, it destroys the ability of people to develop the kind of historical or class consciousness that is necessary for a revolution. Um, Having said all of that, I think a lot of leftists glommed on to kind of postmodern art because it was considered hip and cool and conservatives hated it without really thinking through the implications of postmodern kind of culture and art and of remix culture. I mean, they, you know, and Jameson hates that. And a lot of older school leftists, like when you looked at cultural studies um, uh, kind of arguments, at the time, most of the people doing cultural studies were heavily influenced by the Frankfurt School and by Walter Benjamin and, uh, you know, and, and people like Jameson. And they kind of hated experimental and emergent new art forms because they felt like it was giving in to capitalism, which allowed for all sorts of technological innovation as well as social and cultural innovation that they didn't like. I don't want to nitpick on the Benjamin piece. I, I think the uh, I think that that's probably true of Adorno, who, whose tastes were conservative. I I think Benjamin, who is uh, himself kind of a heretic within the Frankfurt School, was much more amenable to to remix and montage and and cultivated that. You know, the Arcades Project is 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 a work, an uncompleted masterpiece that was his attempt to basically collect things, and through that cultivation very idiosyncratic idiosyncratic project redeemed them so he his one of his most powerful figures is the figure of the the collector who who's not really bound by discipline or canon but kind of mixes high and low i think benjamin sort of founded that school i i agree i you know that's that's a great insight and i i will say uh just to kind of defend my position a little bit the thing that defines benjamin and maybe it's wrong but is the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction and in that there is such a vast anxiety about you know the the repurposing of images and of culture because you know you lose the aura you lose the historical circumstances under which something was built 
And that's what was infusing kind of cultural studies, which is absolutely you're right. That is much more uh, indebted directly to, you know, the culture industry arguments in dialectic of enlightenment and whatnot. And it to me, what was interesting is that at in the 90s, there were people people and i'm thinking of people like henry jenkins who i guess is now at usc but was at mit at the time and uh, constance penley who's at ucsb where they were you know they're not libertarian i mean they have libertarian leanings uh you know etc but you know they're they're conventionally left-wing academics but they were kind of exploring the ability to kind of make you know make things new and and how fan culture in particular appropriated expropriated you know, and just did all kinds of interesting stuff that, you know, they ran into a lot of trouble from kind of conventional uh, left-wing cultural studies people. I think there's a, a lot of people who would find common cause in experimentation for a variety of reasons. Maybe where the roads diverge is what um, what their expectation or hope is from that experimentation. I think one view says experimentation is kind of just an end in itself. Art for art's sake, there's a kind of human dignity expressed in creativity. And then there is a revolutionary sensibility that animated a lot of avant-garde art art movements who, who um, you know, were either on the far left or the far right, um, who thought that aesthetics was kind of bringing in a new reality. Uh, and the experiment, in, experiment in, in art forms was to be in parallel with a kind of art experiment in political forms, often um, born of a messianic dissatisfaction with the status quo. What, what's interesting about that, too, uh, you know, is just that, in, and particularly when you're talking about the early 20th century through, you know, the end of the, the great totalitar totalitarian experiments, is how aesthetics, broadly speaking, including modernist aesthetics, really, you know, whether you were a fascist or a socialist, you kind of were looking, you, your art looked the same in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the things that I feel happy to have been born when I was, I mean, obviously I would rather, you know, be, I would have rather be born in 1983 than 1963, but it's much better than being born in 1943, just because the world does tend to get better, I think, um, is um, we, in the 90s in particular, we hit a moment where a lot of the ability to experiment and innovate was brought to the masses. Uh, we, you know, is an era of mass customization, mass personalization. One of the first big pieces I wrote for Reason was called something like "In Praise of Artistic Chaos," and the idea of what happens when the material conditions change, so that everybody can tape whatever TV show they want and kind of edit it to be whatever they want it to be, and you know, and that just has continued to grow, and that changes avant-gardeism in a really interesting way or because it becomes more expressive, not of an elite that is, you know, uh, culturally elite, politically elite, economically elite, but it's everywhere. And that's kind of a great moment. And I think we're still in that uh, moment, but we don't know how to acknowledge it or we don't want to acknowledge it because it makes things very, very messy, but it also makes it more interesting. And I, yeah, and if I may just to, uh, you know, it's funny in, in preparing for this or thinking about this, I, I realized like, oh shit, I know I'm gonna, it's gonna be sloppy because philosophers and you're trained as a philosopher, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, like your approach to language is, is so radically different than literary studies because, you know, you 
you take in a way, I mean, I take the text really seriously, but I don't take individual words very seriously and even concepts. And um, so I suspect that'll be creeping in here a little bit. And it's funny, um, you know, when I read works by philosophers or historians and I'm like, God, how, how do these people function? Because philosophers always are picking apart words until there is no meaning. And then like, okay, we're out of here. And then, you know, historians never cite the text. So it becomes, it's very confusing, but <laughs> I just want to We can it. be postmodern and, and hop around methodologies. But just backing up uh, a little bit from the, the substance of the arguments. So I'd love to hear a little bit of kind of what values you grew up with and how they changed. Like, what was your personal journey towards libertarianism? Do you, I mean, as you mentioned that libertarians are marginal, and I'm very interested in, in that, like, what it means to be um, a proponent of a worldview that at least culturally and politically is not so mainstream. Of course, you know, maybe uh, maybe the influence has infiltrated, uh, but in terms of as an identity label, like to call yourself a libertarian requires a little bit of iconoclasm. So I just, you know, I'd love to hear more about that journey. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I will, uh, you know, and this is also, I'm, I'm at odds with a lot of libertarians in that I am very interested in kind of uh, material, not material explanations, but kind of, you know, understanding material causes and material situations and the kind of thought and whatever they give rise to. Um, and I think a lot about class. I, 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 you know, besides being a postmodern libertarian, I often talk about myself as a Marxist libertarian because I think that class is really important. And that, again, when I was going to grad school, race, class, and gender was the holy, you know, the holy trinity that was always being talked about. We need to look at everything from the perspectives of race, class, and gender. And what was fascinating to me is that race and class, uh, race and gender got talked about a lot, but then class didn't really because nobody you know everybody in academia and there's there's a certain moment where like to be uh you know to be female or particularly to be like a alternative sexual orientation or an alternative sexual identity or to be a racial or ethnic identity of of particular sorts that was empowering um even if institutionally you know people did not have a lot of power but there were moments where that became to say i am you know, I am a, a homosexual, I am this, I am that, like it was, it gave you some power. With class, that was never the case because nobody in academia at rock bottom, nobody wants to admit that they grew up in a shitty working class, lower middle class, ugly household, you know, with you know plastic on the furniture or, you know, with uh, like I did with, uh, you know, Picasso prints. Uh, put on the wall and you know in frames that cost fifty times more than the the print itself. Um, but I, I grew up in a lower middle class household. Uh, my parents were the children of immigrants. Uh, they were born in the twenties, and um, they uh, bizarrely had this sense. Even though my father didn't graduate high school, my mother uh, was the daughter of Italian immigrants and didn't speak English until she went to school uh, until like she was six. They had this idea that we, my brother and sister and I, uh, I have an older brother and an older sister, were going to, um, you know, go to college because we were smart and that's what you do. Um, they literally had no idea how you went to college. They just kind of thought that happened at the end of high school. But um, um, and 
as a result of that, like I was always kind of thinking about economic realities growing up because it was, you know, I was not starved as a child or anything, but money was always tight. Money was always an issue. And my parents were aspirational in terms of, I was just telling somebody this, again, they grew up in immigrant households during the depression and they, you know, they gave us swimming and tennis lessons because in the movies and when they were growing up, that's like was a sign that you were well off, that you could swim and that you played tennis uh, and things like that. So this kind of orientation towards material reality, economic reality was always front and center to me. My brother went to college ahead of me. He started reading Reason Magazine and he had gone through, he's into science fiction and things like that. And he went through a uh, period of reading a lot of Robert Heinlein and Ayn Rand, and these are authors that are very simpatico with libertarian ideas. But he got to uh, college, uh, he went to Rutgers, which is where I went, which you know is where Milton Friedman went as an undergrad, so uh, it has that kind of libertarian lineage that it tries to ignore. Uh, but my brother discovered Reason Magazine and started sending it home to me like uh, from college and he was you know he was like i think you might like this and i really liked the kind of iconoclasm and the counter uh, intuitive uh, analysis that was going on in the magazine which was heavily indebted to economic analysis at the time and this would have been the late 70s and early 80s and i started reading reason and that had a huge impact on me and i read uh, milton and rose friedman's free to choose which was like a secret history of America, which I found very compelling and interesting. The idea that, uh, you know, the real power, it's both the government and it's big businesses that collude with government to kind of structure things um, in ways that nobody really acknowledges. And I found that very convincing. And then culturally, that also led me to a kind of interest in individualism. And I was always very um, interested in people living however they wanted. My my aesthetic taste did not at all run to uh, Rand, but more to Jack Kerouac and the Beats. And, um, you know, and the idea that people could, you know, kind of live however they wanted was intoxicating to me as somebody who was raised in a, again, a lower middle class household where my father worked. He had a white collar job for a shipping company but was terrified throughout the 70s that he was going to be fired and you know the economy was kind of shitty and he was very conformist in the way that he looked and the way that he thought and my mother was like that it was very important to be conformist because otherwise you might get found out that you don't really belong in this room and you should go back to you know hell's kitchen which is where part of the time my father grew up in new york like you should be banished from decent society and so i kind of, I did not like that. And I was growing up at a time where, you know, the seventies, uh, which gets shit on all the time. is like a terrible decade, uh, you know, a horrible economic decade, et cetera. But it was also like a, an incredible moment of, uh, you know, of individualization of life. And, you know, this is what Tom Wolfe, uh, wrote about in the de in the me decade, um, the third great awakening or the me decade, the essay that kind of named that decade. And his whole point was that whatever was going on with economics, a lot of stuff became cheaper and suddenly plumbers were dressing, you know, kind of like uh, movie stars. And you couldn't tell who somebody was anymore by the way they dressed or the what they did. Um, and that everybody was acting like aristocrats used to, you know, they just did whatever the fuck they wanted. And I find that kind of intoxicating and very uh, empowering. And that so those kind of forces pulled me towards 
a kind of libertarian idea. One way of thinking about libertarianism that I've heard, and I don't know if you would agree with this characterization, mm -hmm. is that um, libertarians look for win-wins as opposed to um, mm -hmm. engaging in zero-sum or adversarial <laughs> conflicts. Or and what what philosophy looks for the lose lose? <laughs> you know, that's that's what we really need. Well, right? I you guess know. just um, you know, in a certain view of Marxism, uh, you know, the right. the proletariat is right, yeah. and the the ruling right. class are exploiters. Whereas if you right. talk to let's say Charles Koch, um, the yeah. point is we'll we'll make an alliance with anybody who can help us get this done or like peter Thiel would say yeah. something to the effect of uh, he said i think he said as much in a conversation with the anarchist uh, david graber that mm -hmm. libertarians are bored with politics or fed up with it because you can't mm -hmm. get anything done and so they're just going to build right now obviously not everyone agrees with that but there's yeah. some there's some no. characterization of libertarians as trying to focus on the positive rather than focusing on the places where they're losing. Do, what, what do you think about that? So there's, yeah, so there's a couple things to say about that. One is, you know, there, there's the economic theory that really comes out of Adam Smith, I guess, or he articulates it most famously, which is that when you have a, an exchange between two people, you know, the classic hackneyed example is you've got a gallon of milk, but you're a, a milk farmer. You don't need it. I've got a dollar, but I don't have any milk. So I give you a dollar for the milk. I'm better off. You're better off at the end of the exchange. And that obviously is distinct from a kind of Marxist or Marxian analysis of exchange and things like that. And I think libertarians are drawn to that kind of idea that, you know, like there's gains from trade and it's not exploiter and exploited, but rather under the best circumstances, it's people who are not exactly equal, but each of them benefits from exchanging. And that that's kind of a model for the world of all kinds of interaction. When I engage a different culture uh, or I read a new novel, it's not that I get colonized by it or exploited by it, but I learn something new and I might adapt differently to it and they get something from interacting with me. Uh, the question about politics, the way I think about it is, um, you know, what libertarians believe in, and I think this is, you know, Again, I'm, I'm not a, an anarchist. I'm more of a, of a kind of classical liberal, I guess, in that mold um, where so I, I don't question the need for the state or something like that. I'm, I'm also as a postmodern, I'm not that interested in foundational theories. Uh, you know, I'm more kind of like, you know, I, I at some point we should talk about Heidegger, but, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we're thrown into the world and we've got a certain amount of time here and like. I don't want to spend the first 80 years of my life building a perfect foundation just in order to die at 81 and you know like now that i'm sure but in any case um what i think about with it is that what libertarians understand that politics is is a necessary part of human life but it's also one that is not necessarily win-win because uh, you know, absent, and I'm going into rights language here, you know, there are certain rights that can't be legislated away. But in general, in politics, 51% or 50% of a population of a voting population, plus one vote gets to tell the other 49, you know, uh, how to live. And it's not it's not good. It's it's it is zero sum in a, in a significant way. And as a result, you want to squeeze that part of life that is subject to politics to the smallest you know, sector possible in your life because what is most exciting about life and what is most interesting and what is most fun and, and 
inspiring is it happens beyond politics. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, um, this, uh, you know, when I think of something like Amazon, you know, dot com, right? Um, it's, you know, clearly politics ends up involved in everything and things like that. But like the way Amazon was built and created, it was kind of like, we're not going to worry about politics right now. We're not going to every city or anything and we're petitioning to be able to open a bookstore or this or that. Like they did it and it was beyond you know, the reach of politics for a long time. And it created this beautiful thing. Um, and that, you know, that also happens with lifestyle and things like that. One of the things that I love about the 60s counterculture, um, you know, and I'm thinking of people like Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog is like, they didn't, they didn't sit around and petition the local city council to have a commune or to, you know, to build a, a geodesic dome in the middle of San Francisco. They went wherever they were going and they just fucking built it. And then you figure it out later. And to me, that's a big part of being libertarian is not that politics don't matter, but you squeeze it down to the smallest amount possible so that you can get on with your life projects. And this is also something where later Foucault certainly, you know, talked about, you know, in a quasi Nietzschean way of living your life as a work of art. And I think that is also very consonant with libertarianism. And if you have to go to the school board meeting every week in order to get your curriculum passed, you're not going to be spending a lot of time actually teaching that curriculum. It's better to, to find a place where you can do it, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and start doing that. Just to touch on Coke and uh, Teal, one thing that's interesting is, you know, Charles Coke is in his 80s, I guess. And I, I know him a bit. I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times and I generally think he's been a force for not just good, but really good things in America. It's interesting that he, you know, in his dotage now is has rejected politics. He said it was a big mistake when the Coke kind of industries people got into trying to pick winners and losers in the political sphere, which they did for, you know, 10 or 15 years in a heavy way. They were like, that's idiotic. You know, that was a waste of time. We could have been doing so much more important things. And whereas Teal, who I don't think calls himself libertarian anymore, seems to be moving more into politics. Um, as he, you know, is in his mid to late fifties, and I think that's that's a shame. You know, the best things that Teal has done are not going to come from electing people like J.D. Vance to the Senate in Ohio. Um, it's going to be if, you know, if he finds the next Facebook or the next PayPal. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, my favorite coffee, not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Cometeer comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link cometeer.com slash Zohar to get $20 off your first order. Let's go back to aesthetics for a second. Um, and one of the thinkers who came to mind, he's sort of a... Um, <laughs> a prophet in a certain way um, of our moment, though he didn't get to live to see it, but uh, David Foster Wallace. He describes Anna Nax, uh, the unreliable narrator, the narrator who is so sort of neurotically consumed with his own fallibility and the constructiveness of meaning. And he's a great critic and diagnostician of postmodernism. 
and in many of his stories, writes longingly of his own desire, I think quite autobiographically, to be sincere, to be post-ironic, a theme also picked up in, in Franzen's, uh, Jonathan Franzen's work. And, uh, you know, there's a reading of David Foster Wallace that he he didn't make it, you know, in part because he couldn't let go of his own irony and was consumed by it and that he's kind of writing from the inside of, yes, mental illness, but also a kind of cultural chokehold where postmodernism or skepticism has made it impossible to, to meditate or to go on a date or to enjoy a film or whatever. And so, um, and I think he also, as a result of that, predicts the the backlash against postmodernism, which you which you hear rhetorically all the time, um, which is basically that it denies us the ability to belong and to believe in anything. I mean, it really it does come to you know we're living in a kind of luxurious nihilism, at least in America, where. You don't really have to believe anything, but you know what? Like the restaurants keep getting better and like try this foie gras or, you know, or this vegan foie gras. It's delicious. Right. And that doesn't seem to command a stadium in the same way yeah. that sort of new age gurus, as it were, yeah. do by offering something more metaphysically strong. And so yeah. even if you, let's say the libertarian post 68 vibe <laughs> of choose your own aesthetic works for you and, and a handful of idiosyncratic sort of uh, Lebenskunstlerin, you know, life artists. Um, it seems like sociologically and, and in terms of mass psychology, that's not where the tide has gone. It seemed like David Foster Wallace, who probably would be canceled today, in a sense anticipated his own cancellation, anticipated that irony really isn't to most people's taste. So I I think that's a brilliant reading of David Foster Wallace and 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 you know in a way he was the last gasp. He's the picket's charge of a kind of literary postmodernism, you know, starting with uh you know kind of post-war experimentalists and I'm I'm thinking of um now of course I'm blanking on him the uh the author who wrote um uh, uh J. Henry Wabaugh, uh, the Universal Baseball Association, Robert Coover, Thomas Pynchon, uh, to a certain degree, Don DeLillo, uh, you know, John Hawks, uh, William Gass, like these high kind of postmodern experimental writers, metafictionists. And, you know, Wallace, in a way, uh, and this, by the way, is also something when I was in grad school and particularly at Temple. I was in the creative writing program there, and it was staffed by people who uh, were true believers in really experimental fiction. They had, you know, they all published through Fiction Collective 2, which was like a hyper, even more experimental than this small press called Fiction Collective. Um, and, you know, they were, we were, it was this moment where Thomas Pynchon was going to publish his first novel in 30 years or 25 years. William Gass was finally going to deliver, you know, the metafictional masterpiece, The Tunnel, uh, you know. And like these books came out and they just kind of sucked. Uh, Vineland, you know, by Thomas Pinch. Everybody's like, what, what were we waiting for? But Foster Wallace was the guy who was actually going to, you know, revive that or reinvigorate that. And I think you're right that he couldn't do it. And this is, to me, it's a super challenge. It's a real challenge to a kind of postmodern sensibility, which I think is fundamentally true. You know, we know that what we believe is not true in, you know, with a capital T and that we may end up disowning it tomorrow, but we have to act as if 
it is true. And we also have to act in good faith. And I realize I'm mixing a lot of different kind of philosophical movements. But again, I'm not a philosopher. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a literary critic type. And I think, you know, taking the best of, you know, of a Sartrean um, good faith with the limit, the, uh, you know, the acknowledging the limits of our knowledge and our meaning and that we exist only in error and that we're going to learn more uh, and know more, including knowing more about how little we know tomorrow and still persist in a way that is fundamentally good and fair and meaningful. And like, for me, I guess I haven't thought about this at all in these terms, but for me, what libertarianism does is it, it allows the individual, again, you know, let's put that under erasure or whatever you want to call it, but it allows the individual to more fully emerge and become themselves and form a society that is interesting and pleasing and is expansive and is inclusive. And to me, that gets my blood going. Um, it, and, you know, and it might be the reason why reason, when we have events, you know, we fill, uh, I don't know, you know, we fill the old felt forum. We don't fill Madison Square Garden. Um, and that's going to be more of like uncomplicated, um, you know, left winger progressives who are like, no, there is only exploitation and we exist to destroy that and usher in a different world or right wingers who are like, no, you know what? There is faith and tradition and church and hierarchy. And that's the only way we're going to rescue ourselves. Um, I would like to think that we are increasingly libertarian in many, many major ways. And this goes back to your point about like, what's it like feeling marginal? When I think about lifestyle, libertarians have completely won. I mean, the, you know, and, and this is something that is worth driving home as a, uh, from an ideological point of view. You know, libertarians were the first people to be like, um, like, you should not be put in jail. You should not be demonized. You should not be cast out of decent society because you happen to have an alternative sexuality, you know, that you admit to, um, you know, things like drug legalization, things like interracial, uh, you know, marriages and things like that, you know, the libertarian movement and the libertarian impulse has always been the one that is, that's kind of great. And the idea that, that you could cross borders easily and mix cultures and mix actual individuals and create whole new types of people this is profoundly libertarian and that has largely won. I mean, you know, there are reactionaries of all sorts, but like we've won on a lot of those issues. Um, and I think we can also win on the idea of like, we don't know what the perfect world is like and we're not looking to reach a steady state. What we are looking to do is to enfranchise more people to participate fully in society and to become who they are and develop what they want. Um, and let's see where that gets us. How do we, you know, how do we run, a, you know, an infinite number of Stuart Mill experiments in living? Um, you know, how do, how do we make, how do we bring more people into the lab? And I think that's an empowering, I think that's an attractive position, especially when you pair it with a critique of power, which is what I would say, you know, when, when you're talking about this, it's like, you know, look at the past 20 years of American foreign policy. What, what have we got? with that brutal exercise of power that was, you know, conservatives and liberals, you know, were all for it. It didn't work. What what did we get when the government in the United States was dictating wage and price controls and you had to work, you know, or you aspired to work for IBM or GM or something like that? Like, are these lives that you really want to live? Um, we, we can push past that into a world that is, uh, does not have a single utopian, you know, 
telos to point to, but is also one where it is like infinitely expanding and interesting and rooted in a shared sense of autonomy and empathy. I think that's a pretty good vision, and I think it's a very libertarian one. On the issue of teleology, so like there's an Aristotelian idea that basically everyone has a telos at which they're name they're they're aiming. Every, uh, that's kind of how ethics begins. We all we all want the good life. We all want to be happy. Um, politics is teleological because it aims at the collective good. Is it possible to really dispense with teleology? Is it possible to really say we are open ended? We're neutral. We have no. Uh, top-down view of what goodness is, or um, you know, there, there's perhaps an Aristotelian rejoinder to certain conception of libertarianism, which is there is a telos. The telos is uh, maximizing certain things like autonomy, like prosperity, and that's fine. But that requires some kind of substantial ground commitments which are themselves open to dispute and in the marketplace of ideas. <laughs> It's actually losing. So therefore, on libertarian sort of grounds, uh, we shouldn't be libertarian because uh, most people, if given the choice, don't want to maximize autonomy and prosperity. They want to maximize all kinds of other things. <laughs> Give the people what they want. Uh, wait, wait. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is slavery, right? Or or some form of security, and uh, you know, and where you get to you get to uh you know round up people or or subjugate people that you don't like or whatever things like that i you know i think this is a is also a question of kind of liberalism you know as it emerged uh is you know that it uh and this is something that i think a lot of libertarians i think a lot of people on the right and the left all don't fully accept um you know the idea that liberalism is ultimately not about good and evil i mean you know and if you're if you know modernity kind of dispenses in a lot of ways with these grand moral categories that are transhistorical and fixed of good and evil and um you know it's much more process based it's uh, you know like and and this is a big argument on the right there's a bunch of you know rising i don't think they're very powerful and i don't think they'll go very far but Kind of theocratic conservatives. Many of them are Catholic, and they're talking about you know this you know the state needs to be an instrument of moral instruction on these three things you know and like and anything else is illegitimate. It's a, it's a fundamentally anti-liberal view. I think progressives get tired of liberalism because it does it allows for too much escape. It doesn't it doesn't drive home the point to you know a single you know thing that needs to be worked at all the time and in all ways. And you know what. I would say is like, um, you know, you we can talk about like, you know, everybody has a telos in the sense like you're going to get to the end of your life and then you're going to sum it up or something like that. Or, you know, is it like everybody is a seed and you become a tree or an acorn becomes an oak tree or whatever like that? You, yeah, we can talk about this. But ultimately, I think if we're looking at social organization and what we're talking about is achieving a world which is you know, has more people participating in it in a full way, but not necessarily dictating what the end is, that we're going to live in the new Rome or the new Byzantium or anything like that. I actually think that's a pretty good pitch to people. And I know, 
you know, when I think about this stuff, because we're in a in an era where it seems like nationalism is coming back um, and kind of a certain types of traditionalism, because people are like, you know, this modern world of creative destruction, it's like it's too much. I can't handle it. I want some fixed verities in my life. Um, you know, a century ago, and I think about all this a lot, and I'm living in the New York that my grandparents moved to from old Europe because they didn't want to be part of somebody's, you know, nationalist narrative or, you know, civilizational narrative. They got out because of World War One. They were, they, you know, and I think we can revive an interest in a kind of open-ended future where we are experimenting a lot and like at various times we'll be moving towards certain things, but we don't, I, I, I don't, I absolutely reject the idea that the only way for a country to be great or a, a society to be great is that we have a single goal that we continue to enlist or enforce or impress people into fulfilling. Postmodern thinkers um, can be gadflies. Uh, they can be annoying uh, mm -hmm. because they yes. rightly. I feel like I, I feel seen. <laughs> Thank you. They, I, yeah. in my view, they they often rightly, uh, though not necessarily adaptively, uh, point out that the things that we think are consensus are not in fact consensus or the things that we take to be legitimate are in fact much more messy and uh, open to dispute than than we would accept. And um, I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, just just um, I put a parenthetical in, which was the a distinction between being right and being adaptive, uh, we should maybe, maybe we'll flag that as another point of conversation because I think uh, there's a certain line of thinking from Leo Strauss, which is that the philosopher knows certain things to be true, but has an obligation to society to actually keep those truths hidden because, right. you know. This, I, I call this the Dr. Zayas theory of society. <laughs> you know, I, I loved, uh, you know, the original Planet of the Apes at the end when Dr. Zayas you know, is he's the ultimate Straussian, right? Because he's been hiding, spoiler alert, you know, he's been hiding the whole time that he knows that apes descended from man. But it's like, come on, you let that out. And like, you know, fucking people are going to go, I, I guess, human shit in, in front of the <laughs> apes. If, there's a certain, know. yeah, they, there's a certain story one could tell about sort of postmodernism being maybe the most accurate view, but not necessarily the view that we want most people most of the time to have orienting them. Right. That, yeah. Can I, can, a couple things, because I think you're, you are tapping into something that is true about a lot of postmodern writing, which I find annoying. And this includes elements of David Foster Wallace, but I'm also thinking of people like Donald Barthelmay. And again, you know, recognizing that aesthetics and kind of philosophy or, you know, are not quite the same, but there's a lot of overlap. But like, you know, it's kind of glib and it's kind of like, oh, you know, look how smart I am. You know, like I'm mocking everything that anybody could ever possibly hold possible. And that is part, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a, a Warholian element of that, um, you know, of like, let's just make fun of everything, you know, that is around us. And even the things we love where, you know, we can be super fans of something and keep making fun of it at the same time. And that can be really corrosive and it can be very corrosive. You know, the public choice economics, which comes out of work uh, by uh, James Buchanan, the economist, Nobel Prize winner, wrongly derided as some kind of like super racist John C. Calhounite. Uh, but, it, you know, the 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 f credo of that impulse was uh, politics without romance. 
And it's kind of like it can postmodernism can be an acid bath on everything, you know, and it just tears things away. And that is troubling. And for me, one of the things that I struggle with um, is the idea that, no, you can recognize the uh, contingency of things, a contingency of knowledge and of truth, but you still act, you know, in good faith and you, you, you go all the way for it. Um, and so when, you know, the Straussians, when they say, you know, you know, some of us know the truth, but we really can't let the little people know this because they'll be driven insane or they'll become, they'll all become Hitler or Napoleon or something like that. I got to say, and this is like, you know, partly of where I grew up and how I grew up. It's like, fuck you. Like, don't tell me that because I know I would have been one of the people that the truth would have been hidden from because I didn't, you know, I didn't come from the right place and I don't have the right clothes, et cetera. And it's like, to me, like that is, is so wrong. Um, and that, that type of elitism is one of the great things that capitalism destroys over time. So I love, you know, Schumpeter talks in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy about creative destruction, but about three generations from work sleeves to work sleeves. What is great about capitalism, which I think in a lot of ways is just an applied liberalism of giving more people the ability to choose, you know, how to live their lives, it, it destroys the elites. Um, and gets rid of them. And then the one other problem, though, is that elites always, you know, they always are working backwards and creating a usable past for how they have always been in charge, even if, you know, they only showed up a generation or two ago. But no, no, I'm sorry if great. that um, pulls you off. So topic. I'm thinking about a couple uh, ideas that I've heard from Nassim Taleb and Russ Roberts, something along the lines of, um, and I, I, I think Russ Roberts actually gets this from Adam Smith himself. So something along the lines of, uh, you know, the less trust there is in society, the more libertarian you should be. But the more trust there is in any group or organization, the less libertarian you should or ought to be. So, for instance, you know, we don't treat romantic partners <laughs> uh, on the whole. We're not libertarian. We we actually make demands of them and we want demands made of us. Uh, we don't, liber you know, liberty is one value amongst many, but it's probably not the defining value. And s same for uh, families. Um, you know, uh, Russ Roberts himself said something like he, you know, he doesn't treat his youngest ch child um, as as free. He wants to intervene to protect him from the older child um, <laughs> and so on and so forth. So um, the question and, and, and Taleb says, Something like uh, you should be a liberal with your friends and a libertarian with strangers, uh, something like that. And a socialist, or maybe he says that you should be a socialist with your friends and a uh, libertarian with strangers. So the question is kind of libertarianism is a political philosophy, but not all of our engagements are at the level of this giant polis. And so I'm just wondering, like, what is the day? What is a day in the life of a libertarian? <laughs> You know, when not advocating for the legalization or decriminalization of drugs or, or or what have you, like, does it does it and should it inform sort of interpersonal relations, or is that in a sense a paradox because you should have whatever you should be free to have whatever values you have, including non libertarian values, you know, at that level. Yeah, that is, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, literally today's 
we're taping this on a Friday. Uh, on Wednesday, I released a podcast with one of my colleagues, a woman named Stephanie, Stephanie Slade, um, who writes a lot about varieties of libertarianism. And we were having an argument about you know what some people call thick versus thin libertarians, what she calls political versus comprehensive libertarians. Like, is libertarianism a political philosophy that really only is about your uh, a person's relationship to the state and coercion and like force? Or is it a more general theory of going on in life? And I am very much of the latter category. Um, and so to answer your question, um, you know, and I have two children, I have an ex-wife, and I suspect each of them might give a different account of what it means to, you know, what I am like, you know, on a given day as a libertarian, right? As a somebody who believes libertarian ideals of kind of empathy and autonomy is the way that I've been thinking about it over the past couple of years. Like that should infuse every interaction that I have. It doesn't mean, you know, it, it doesn't mean that I, I treat my 20 year old as uh, you know, like a shareholder in a, in a stock company or something like that. I mean, I have parental obligations and responsibilities and I try to teach them that and I try to learn from them. But that idea of empathy and autonomy is, absolutely central to every interaction everybody should have in every circumstance, I think. And you can't, I don't think you can be, I mean, the subtitle of this podcast, I was like, can you be, uh, um, you know, can you be a, a libertarian in the streets and an authoritarian or a progressive in the sheets? Um, and like, I don't think so, to be quite honest. I can't get away from trying to be libertarian, by which I mean I treat people with empathy and autonomy. Um, and it doesn't mean that my young kids are, or young son is equal to me in his legal rights or in his financial rights, or that I will cut him out when he, you know, when he stops producing for me or something like that. I think one of the big problems with the libertarian movement as a kind of sociological phenomenon going back about 50 years, or maybe after World War II, is that it, um, it's been overwhelmed by economic thinking and economists, you know, they have a lot of good things to say and within their framework, they have a lot of explanatory power, but I think they started to kind of um, exceed their, their field or their domain in a way that um, turned libertarianism on a personal level into some kind of you know, ridiculous version of homo economicus. And I, that just doesn't, I, that doesn't even enter my mind. Um, and if I may, to talk about choice, uh, trust, high trust and low trust, though, this is a fascinating um, issue for me. And I've written about this really since uh, George W. Bush's administration um, and the growth of government under that. Um, uh, for the past 50 years, what we've been witnessing in the United States, and this is broadly true of, of kind of the OECD nations, but not all of them, but certainly in, in America, a massive decline in trust and confidence in government. And at the same time, and you know, in, in one way that's a win for the libertarian message, right? Because you know, the libertarian message was government is at best incompetent and at worst is actively malevolent. Um, we kind of won that argument and people don't trust government the way they used to. If you look at Gallup, which has been tracking this stuff and all the different parts of government, people don't like it, but we've also gotten more government. And a lot of libertarians are kind of like, how can this be? And I poked around a little bit and it's like, that's obviously going to happen because as, as you move from a high trust society to a low trust society, 
people around the globe routinely ask the government to regulate more aspects of their lives because they are terrified that everybody around them is a crook. And even though they know the government is is crooked, they want some kind of structure um, and some kind of place they might be able to appeal what they see as you know, just kind of antisocial behavior all around. And my argument, and this is somewhat controversial among libertarians, is that what we need to be doing is to stop saying the government is always terrible in all circumstances and instead focus attention on saying the government should be doing fewer things. The government should be more limited than it is, but it should be doing those things very competently. And we should be working towards policies that allow the government to be more effective in the areas that it actually has has a role. And when you have more trust in government, people want less government. Um, so it's actually, I don't know, I, that kind of sideways into what you were talking about, but a high trust society is one where I think people can be more libertarian in the sense that they're open to exchange and they're open to, you know, kind of transparency and things like that, because we're like, hey, we're all, you know, we're all kind of credible actors here. Let's, let's talk and let's negotiate. Let's come up with new ways of doing things, new ways of living. Just to get back to this issue of legitimacy. So is legitimacy possible? I think there's a sort of common sense view of legitimacy from social contract theory that something like um, the government is legitimate if it reflects the will of the people and it's illegitimate if it doesn't. Of course, in practice, you know, what is the will of the people? Is it it's 50% for 50, 50.5% versus right. 49.5? Or do you go with the natural rights thing, which the government is legitimate when it, it, you know, it, it has the consent of the governed, but also that we agree these certain amount of things are off the table. Sure. I guess just, um, you know, if you look at really dysfunctional states, like this is kind of the the wheelhouse of a Francis Fukuyama type, um, or you know Noah Feldman. You you can see that some states um, there's a sense that they're relatively speaking legitimate, and other states not. And the difference is more or less that people are if people are out rioting and uh, protesting in the streets, that's a clear sign that something's broken. And if they're not, okay, yes, people have complaints. They w- want you know they want things to be better, but. In a sense, there's a de facto legitimacy simply to the fact that people are, you know, not uh, taking up arms. Um, So there's or leaving on or leaving on mass. So there's a kind of a practical way of doing legitimacy, which is in a sense just comparative. It's like, well, would you rather leave live in America or Saudi Arabia? Um, But from a postmodern point of view, I think this is another reason why people don't like the postmodernists. I think they basically say that all authority is dubious um, and therefore illegitimate. So to go back to, and maybe we'll we'll close with this kind of section, but we we open by de- defining postmodernism in part as a as a view of the limits of cognition and a suspicion of meta narratives. But um, at the what's the What's the rub of that? Like, what, what's at stake in that? I think one one way of understanding what's at stake in that is to what extent we should trust uh, authorities. And if you follow postmodernism to its conclusion, you might you might come to uh, to view everyone with suspicion, especially those in power. And I think postmodernism eats itself in a way in that you come to suspect 
even the philosopher, even the postmodern professor, who after all is just another human being, <laughs> subject to the same corruptions as as the the stodgy classicist. You know, I'd rather I'd rather uh, I'd rather risk the elitism of like a traditional education, <laughs> personally, with and all the staleness and and repression that comes with that than be sort of subject to the tyrannical whims of a post-structuralist professor who's not going to teach me anything and just going to make me read some some dense stuff and write a gobbledygook paper, basically, to sort of you know channel ch- channel some of this. Sadly, this is one of the reasons that I find this you know incredibly um, depressing and you know just disillusioning that the humanities in in universities are mostly falling partly because of what you just described that that's the way they're perceived you know certainly literature departments uh my ex-wife is married to uh, a guy they're professors at chapman university right now uh, but he had taught at duke for you know since the late 80s he was there you know he was part of the crew that stanley fish um assembled but they had something like when he started they had something like a thousand English majors. And by the time he left a few years ago for Chapman, they were down to under a hundred. Uh, and I think in large part because people, you know, students were like, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, if all I'm going to do is read super dense essays and then write papers that even I don't understand. Um, having said that, okay, so two things, one about universities or, or about education. I went to Buffalo largely to work with Leslie Fiedler, who at various points, uh, you know, very influential, I'd argue is uh, like he and Harold Bloom in really kind of great, you know, Apollo and Dionysian ways, uh, kind of like were the two uh, markers of post-war literary criticism. I'm definitely a Fiedlerite. Fiedler was an iconoclast. He was a canon revisionist to the max. He did not waste a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, what is a perfect work? And then I'm going to measure everything against it. He just read a ton of stuff and compared it to stuff that was already around and came up with marvelous new ways of talking about stuff. And for me, the the best part of postmodernism, again, broadly thinking, and I realize these the words we've been using even by my loose standards are very loose, but what you did, you know, what was entailed by being postmodern meant that you read everything. It wasn't just that you fixated on like your little obsession, but like you had to know the canon, you had to know history, you had in order to know what you were doing and to what you were revising and where you were headed. And it was incredible, like people like that, uh, you know, and I think of Camille Paglia, who has uh, who has talked a lot about how both Harold Bloom and and Leslie Fiedler kind of you know influenced her um, in in different ways, but like you know you read everything, um, and so it's it isn't a narrowing of scope and it isn't a retreat into kind of pedantry and, and you know and word games. It's actually it properly understood postmodernism commits you to a massive engagement with the world and with the past in a way that I find intoxicating and exhilarating. And I think if more people talked about literature like that, uh, you know, English departments would still be doing well because the the skills you learn in literary analysis are, you know, incredibly useful to your own life as well as to virtually any job that anybody is ever going to have. So, uh, you know, So you don't I, I, have to throw out standards of legitimacy. No, no, no. But what, what the whole point of this too is like, and, and I, in, in that piece about kind of in praise of artistic chaos that I cited briefly, 
my whole point was that in the uh, you know over the past 50 years you know that the cultural sphere was being deregulated that consumption and production of culture was being deregulated and it was fantastic but a lot of people were like oh my god standards are going out the window and that would be like saying during the reformation because suddenly people could make their own religions there were no religious standards anymore what it did was it proliferated and multiplied the types of standards that exist and that's where real knowledge that's where real engagement that's where something like progress with a very small p happens you know because suddenly you can you know you 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 can think more broadly and wisely about everything um and so for me that's a really fundamental aspect of postmodernism is not that it allows you to, you know, kind of absent yourself from the world or just sitting in your little garden. It's like, no, you have to engage and you have to create and you have to argue with people about everything because legitimacy is not a question of like, are you always right? But it's like, are you acting in good faith? And are you, you know, here, you know, you're a legitimate person says, this is how I think about the world. World, Here's the math that I use to get there. Will you check it for me? It's very enlightenment, um, you know, and, and that postmodernism properly understood. Hayek actually talked about this a bit. It is not, uh, he didn't use the word postmodernism, but he, you know, that it's not a critique uh, or rather um, it's not anti-enlightenment. It is the enlightenment where you start to recognize not knowing everything fully is that's how you get to more and better knowledge uh and if i may just to point to this question of political legitimacy i mean for me the big import of a kind of libertarian postmodern understanding of politics and policy is that you recognize you have to make choices you know because otherwise life stops and societies have to make choices but you do that recognizing the limits of knowledge and so you tread lightly especially when you are doing things to other people um and to bring it back to foucault so he was at buffalo in the early 70s for a bit and he corresponded with thomas saws who's the great critic of psychiatry he was an anti-psychiatric anti-psychiatric psychiatrist who wrote a book in the early 60s called the myth of mental illness which you know corresponded very well to uh, things like Foucault's birth of the clinic and whatnot, where, you know, both of them said that medical language is used to control people fundamentally. It's not about a, an objective reality of illness or wellness, but it's a, it's a means of social control. They had a lot to talk about. And I think about that when you talk about the ways in which the medical establishment at various points and kind of in mid-century, mid-20th century, was filled with hubris because they were like, no, this is science. Like, we discovered this 15 minutes ago. Now let's bring it out to the masses. You know, and so they signed off on things like ice pick lobotomies or, you know, mass sterilizations of certain types of people and all sorts of, you know, really awful things happened because they, you know, they believed there were no limits to their knowledge as scientists. And fighting against that kind of hubris in public policy is really important. And it doesn't illegit, you know, it doesn't make illegitimate the idea that, you know, we need to have hospitals for people who have mental problems or who have people who have people who have trouble living. Um, but it also means you don't immediately go from, you know, a small scale study to a vast implementation of something. And that when government 
kind of admits its limits, even as it's doing things, I think people will respond to that in an affirmative way. Think about, you know, we're still in COVID, we're kind of coming out of it, but if government officials at various points, public health officials had had the willingness, the temerity to say, this is what we know right now. And we, this is what we're going to try and why, as opposed to constantly invoking science with a capital S and then reversing themselves, you know, six weeks later and then changing and then denying that they ever said this or whatever. Of course, that breeds cynicism in people, but it's a cynicism not because of postmodernism, it's a cynicism because of modernist kind of views that like, oh, no, no, we have, we know everything and who are you? to question who we are or what our legitimacy is. I, I, I think people are ready. Like if I am ready, the, the, you know, a person born, uh, you know, in the circumstances that I was and, you know, with, you know, if, if I can live with understanding that authorities don't always know what is right and proper, but we can get along and we can kind of move towards a world where more people are involved and more people get to make decisions that matter in their lives that's a better world and it doesn't mean you know mere anarchy is loosed or that you know a kind of nietzschean will to power is the only way forward i think empathy is definitely undervalued in both daily life and in in culture and i'd love to see more of it but i don't know if i'm a utopian vis-a-vis what empathy can do in the sense that um there might just be a point where if people have different wills to power my expressing empathy for your position, which I'm then going to ultimately try to defeat because I think I'm better than my view is better than yours. There, there, there might be a point at which the person just says, you know, I don't want you can take your empathy. Um, I don't want it. I'd rather have you just be a kind of brazen Nietzschean telling me this is how it is and you're going to lose than, you know, shooting and crying you know it's like not 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 only are you going to be a tyrant but you also want you also want an award for empathy like <laughs> right i i know i agree and that you know i i agree with that completely and i lived uh partly because my ex was teaching at miami university of ohio i lived in a small uh college town in ohio outside of cincinnati oxford ohio for 20 years and like a lot of libertarians one of their dogmas is, you know, like we've got to take the power out of Washington and bring it to more local levels because then it's more responsive. And it's like, not really. Uh, and in Oxford, Ohio, the powers that be just did whatever the fuck they wanted. And you had to live with that in, you know, you would see people who made stupid zoning decisions in the aisles of the local grocery store. And it's like, you know, at that point, I was like, you know what, I kind of like a, a, a distant power. Uh, you know, that I at least I don't have to look them in the face every time I go to buy produce or something like that. So I hear that um, for sure. But I think the alternative is also and I guess this, you know, gets back to everything is provisional, but kind of, you know, isn't this the insight of kind of liberal political philosophy where at, at a certain point, everybody sues for peace. And I so I say to you, like, OK, I'm not going to try to kill you and you can't try to kill me. And we're going to authorize some kind of system that allows us to adjudicate and mediate our disputes in a way that doesn't have to be you win or I win, um, but something else. I'm also a big fan, and I realize this is probably bad to throw in towards the end, but of Albert Hirschman, the political economist who 
uh, wrote a book in the late 60s, early 70s called Exit Voice and Loyalty, uh, which is about how how can people respond to states that are in decline, firms that are in decline, societies and institutions in decline. And he, you know, um, and I think keeping that front and center of like where, you know, you can you can become loyal to an institution that is treating you poorly and you just become a company man and ride it out. You use your voice to reform it from within and you use, you know, you know whatever is available to you within the system or you exit the system. And I think guaranteeing or, you know, helping firm up the right of exit from any kind of governance system, uh, including family, including work, including politics, um, that's a good kind of conversation to have. Like, because if people can leave, it conditions the people who hold power. Um, you know, they you you can't abuse people as much if they actually have a legitimate right of exit. I think a lot about this in terms of foreign policy because generally I'm very anti, uh, I'm very skeptical of um, American military powers ability to intervene in a way that doesn't make things worse. But the one thing that we could always be doing as a country, and we shamefully are not, we're not even doing this with Ukraine or Afghanistan and Iraq, where we could be accepting people, we could be guaranteeing their right of exit to a different society. And um, so I think a lot about that. And I think that's a fundamental kind of libertarian element of like, you know, I, I, you know, there's limits to this, but like, I want to persuade you to keep working with me. I want to persuade you to live in the town that I'm governing, et cetera. And I have to persuade you rather than use force because you have a right of exit. Is there any argument that you've heard or any event that you've experienced that has shaken your libertarian views or at least made you wonder, um, whether you should hold them as tightly as you do. Of course, as someone who's uh, already prone to <laughs> to doubt your own uh, to 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 doubt your your own uh, cognitive uh, capacities, um, there there is also an, an element in which uh, one would have to doubt also the dogma of <laughs> that it's of the doubt itself. <laughs> you know, you know where. In, in a broader sense where I've changed, and I was probably more, you know, when I when I got into libertarianism, I was probably more anarchistic or I was more kind of interested in anarchy. And, you know, because it's, you know, and this goes to, I think, philosophy. And in some of the ways you were playing out scenarios like, you know, let's go to the reductio ad absurdum or, or let's go to the final logical conclusion of something. Um, and that with me vis-a-vis -vis libertarianism, I've kind of gotten away from that. And this is, you know, I, I call myself like, so I'm not interested in finding or even figuring out the pure state of something. Um, I'm much more a, a directional libertarian um, in that, like, are things going in the direction of allowing people more choice in their lives and more autonomy? And like, that's good. It doesn't have to be you know, it, in school choice debates, for instance, you know, like the, the extreme position is that the state should not be involved in education because it's always an interested player and it's always going to be rigging the system to create pliant citizens, right? Uh, which is a critique that both libertarians and left-wingers, particularly in the 60s, used a lot. Um, I, you know, I guess that's true, but like right now, I'm happy if we can move from a state-funded system of education that just gives the parents and kids 
more money directly for more options. Good enough. You know, it's directional. Or I often, I kind of have stopped calling myself a libertarian. I don't use it as a noun, really. I use it as, a, as an adjective because it's kind of a default setting or a, um, a pre-political disposition. I think that also that with postmodern uh, too. Like I don't think one should be a postmodernist, but rather one can have a kind of postmodern sensibility. And that's, you know, that is, that's a big change for me. And also I am increasingly tired of a lot of, you know, these kind of libertarian dogmas that just get you know, trotted out that, you know, government is always and everywhere wrong or that, you know, you can always trust people to make good decisions. You, you know, you really can't, but it's also like nothing really ever hinges on one thing or another. And it's kind of a process. And like, are we moving in a direction where more people have the opportunity uh, to live a meaningful life, um, how they define it? And, you know, what the other thing that is good about all of this and uh you know robert nozick is problematic for a bunch of reasons most of which i don't understand because i'm not a philosopher but you know his vision of a kind of utopia of utopias kind of strikes me as right like you know that you're not again this goes to the point of like no there there isn't a fixed final point that is true and that we should be moving towards but rather Let's create a system, let's create a matrix, a kind of generator of possibilities so that people can explore these things, define themselves, revise themselves, create new societies and new communities that ultimately get abandoned um, or change a lot. Um, so, um, you know, I, to me, moving from kind of fixed rigid endpoints to directional or adjectival libertarianism has been very important to me. And it's, and it, you know, it, it makes me think twice about a lot of um, statements I might've made, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. I, I find this idea of being a directional, you know, advocate of something quite, quite useful um, beyond the, the case study of libertarianism. And it makes me think of a certain line of thinking from really from Hegel. Also, we get it in Fukuyama, which is the idea of development that th that things don't just come about uh, because we have uh, we believe they're right. They they need a plausibility structure that evolves uh, often through contradiction, often through conflict and bloodshed. And so, even something like autonomy, uh, in order to create a world in which there is autonomy and empathy. Um, often requires paradoxically uh, going through experiences and and uh, trial and errors in which those are not uh, those are not possible. I mean, Germany would be a great example of a um, one that Fukuyama gives of a state where um, bureaucracy existed during uh, pre-Nazi uh, times, through during Nazi times, and after Nazi times. And so bureaucracy is morally neutral vis-a-vis -vis, it didn't stop <laughs> it didn't stop Nazism, but um, arguably quality of life in Germany is high now thanks to the fact that they have good state capacity and we we would want to emulate some of that uh, if, if, we, if we want to embol you know to the point of making government competent and, and making people trust government more, you actually do need uh, good systems. So that that's in potentially intention with autonomy. I love the idea of, of development too, you know, both on an individual level where, you know, you, you might put yourself in a situation where you bind yourself over to say like, okay, I'm not, you know, 
I, I, I'm going into the Marines or something, you know, for three years or whatever. And like, I, I'm not allowed to come out. I've made the decision to deliver myself to this thing. And I know when I come out, I ha will have learned certain types of discipline and certain types of skills that will then allow me to exercise my potential in a better way. Um, you know, this is also true of education and everything like you don't, you know, the best places are not places where you go and you give them a certain amount of money and then they give you a degree. It's that they hold you to standards where they might be at the end, you know, like, no, you don't, you don't pass the test or something. Um, but, you know, so, you know, this is, you know, always a fascinating question of like, how do you, how do you get to a place where you can exercise your freedom or autonomy more fully? And oftentimes, you know, not in a horrific way, like, you know, Nazi Germany, but in a, you know, in a personal way, it means giving up a certain amount of autonomy and trusting somebody to kind of structure your life for you. I think that's, you know, um, worth thinking about. And in many ways, this is one of the my concerns about contemporary America is that we've lost sight in many ways of, of um, you know, how do you develop over time? Everything is, you know, everything is either here right now in full form or it doesn't exist or it was bad or something. That's a good place to stop. I hope, uh, I hope the listeners out there are uh, taking some resolve and uh, inspiration in pursuing direction. <laughs> yeah, well, well, one thing I, I want to say, because, and I realize this is, you know, totally sucking up to the host and everything, but before we go, you know, I, I stumbled across your, your work on Twitter where you do these fantastic long threads about different philosophers that I learned a lot about, and especially about the people that I thought I knew about. Um, which is really great because it's it's always good to get a, a rundown on somebody I kind of have heard of but don't know. But um, but you know this is one of the things like this is for me is kind of part and parcel of what is wonderful about the libertarian world we live in, where the way you're kind of engaging people, the way that you're expressing yourself and bringing a perspective onto knowledge, and then introducing it to people who might otherwise not get it, like. What a wonderful confluence of individual action and technological change. And it just creates a world that is so much more interesting and vast and interlocked in all the best possible ways. And we're talking about this on a Twitter, like uh, on a platform like Twitter, which, you know, a decade ago was being celebrated because it empowered the Arab Spring and a variety of colored revolutions around the world. And now everybody despises it. And it's like, wow, there's so much to think about here. But I just want to say, like, I think your work, uh, you know, as I encounter it is, you know, it's been really wonderful to me. And it kind of shows what happens when you loosen the controls on society because of individual effort, but also technology and the fact that, you know, we're less in many ways, we're less governed by things than we used to be. We choose to be governed by a lot of things, but you know, socially and even politically, I think we're less governed than we were a hundred years ago or 50 years ago. And like, for fuck's sake, I hope we take advantage of that. And that's, you know, to again, to, you know, say something nice about Frederick Jameson, this is why we should always historicize because we don't under, you know, and it's not like, oh, we should understand how good we have it and shut up. It's like, we should understand how good we have it so that we can maximize the freedom, you know, or whatever you want to call it, autonomy that we have to build it out to the next level of, of kind of, you know, creating the worlds that we want to live in. 
that's very meaningful to me. Thank you so much. I I feel some some sense of validation, though I'm not doing it for it for the validation, just because I. You know, I, I went through a kind of existential crisis in grad school, wondering how something that I love so much uh, could have an impact. Um, and I didn't find academia to be a place where I felt that I could be, where I could have autonomy and empathy and and be mission aligned. But at the same time, the question of where you can where you can find a place where learning is valued for its own sake. Uh, I still had had the sense and have the sense of a university being a place where people congregate to to read and to think and to talk. And so to be able to share some writing on the internet and have a conversation with you for an hour and a half really does give me a sense of hope that um, we can expand the places where learning for its own sake happens and obviously also get beyond the the, the weird myth that you have to be 18 to 22 <laughs> uh, and privileged in order to do it. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, the university's loss is, uh, is our gain with you. And, you know, this is a form of exit. I, I, I thought about this a lot in terms of literature. Like I don't like a lot of people just say, oh, you know, write creative writing programs are terrible and they've destroyed literature, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's quite true, but it is fascinating. And it's really sad to me to see a lot of creative people, a lot of smart people, a lot of engaged people leaving the university in order to have a life of the mind. It's like, boy, that's not a good outcome. Um, I'm going to give myself the last word uh, and exercise my tyrannical powers as the Mm -hmm. host and just uh, thank you. And also say that um, I think each person should make their own calculus, whether they want to exercise loyalty, voice, or exit. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, and I would love to see the university and a thousand universities bloom for me being here is very meaningful, but I, I think we, we are, we can all be friends in, in trying to get people to feel the blessings of being human guided by uh, not just the, uh, the approved literatures and philosophies, but also by the experimental mix ups uh, and mashups that, that we each find to, to move us. So thank you, Nick. Thank you. My intense pleasure and uh, privilege. Thank you. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.